0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Jessica Bissett, and I'm the Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Yunsun, For today's very timely interview, Eyes on Ukraine, Strategic Implications for China, Russia, and the United States. Briefly, Yun Sun is a Senior Fellow, Co-Director of the East Asia Program, and Director of the China Program at the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. Her expertise is in Chinese foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and China's relations with neighboring countries and authoritarian regimes. In addition, we are very fortunate that Yun is a fellow of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Yun, thank you so much for speaking with today. We have a short amount of time and a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. Um, before we get to all the hot topics related to China, Russia that have been in the news these recent weeks, I was hoping that you could set the stage for us with a little bit more of a broad context. Can you tell us about how Russia and China have gotten as close as they are in recent years, what are the
1: ties that bind them together? Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me for this program. Um, to talk about China-Russia relations, I think the uh what the Chinese will see as a watershed event was the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014. And as such, uh, 2014 was regarded as a year of quote, quote, abnormal acceleration of uh, Sino-Russian relations. Russia was put under stringent international sanctions, especially Western financial sanctions. And it was in urgent need of international financing for some of its domestic projects. And China was in the place to provide those financing. And uh, we also know that Xi Jinping has a great admiration for Russia and for Russian culture, as well as uh, President Putin's leadership. So um, since Xi Jinping took over in 2013, we saw the overlapping of these events basically coming together, pushing China and Russia together, both from an internal endogenous perspective and from an um, external exogenous perspective. So in terms of the international structure, China feels that the US rebalancing to Asia strategy is suppressing China's strategic space. And the same thing as the Chinese see it is happening to Russia in the East Europe because of the expansion of NATO. So this alignment of uh, international structure or almost international system put China and Russia uh, almost in the same corner, or at least from their perspective, they share a, a common antagonism against the West in terms of their security concerns. And then the leadership factor, like I just mentioned, is the internal or the endogenous factor that's driving this uh, this alignment.
0: Great. So you know, you've mentioned their shared values and common goals, you know, they both have authoritarian political regimes, they're both, you know, in this simultaneous con- confrontation with the US. There's the friendship, somebody would say bromance between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Are there areas in which they diverge?
1: in terms of their interests with one another? Well, there's a lot. There really I usually say there are as many factors that drive them apart as factors that drive them together. In fact, when we look at the factors that drive them together um, externally, there's uh, the US factor and internally, there's a leadership factor. But if we, if we look at the conflicts or the, the problems between China and Russia, I would say that the list is, uh, is much longer. Mm-hmm. So to begin with, if you look at what Russia envisions and what China envisions to be their grand strategy or their end game with the international system, I don't think they're on the same page. The Chinese envision a, a, a international order that's basically based on hierarchy, based on your power status, and in which China will inevitably be put on the top. Although China recognized Russia as a power in the region, and I at also a strong power in terms of military power and diplomatic power. But China by no means sees Russia as its peer. So that really projects an international order that is hierarchical and put China on the top. And and I don't think that the Russians have any interest in entertaining such a a vision where put put Russia in a secondary or a inferior status, status. So in the Russian vision for the international order, they would like to see Moscow as a third pole. That the US and China might be the strongest uh, power engaging in the competition, but Russia could be the third pole leading the, the rest of the world or leading the non-aligned movement in order to counter but uh, counterbalance the impact of the US-China strategic competition. And that is not necessarily a, a vision that the Chinese would like to see. So after talking about their strategic visions for their uh, for their future roles in the international order, we also look at, for example, in the region, in for example, Euro Asia and Central Asia, and we see the competition of systems and mechanisms dominated by China and dominated by Russia separately or respectively. In terms of economics, we know that China has built and road initiatives that was launched in, um, in Kazakhstan back in the September of 2013. But that's not necessarily an economic framework that the Russians would like to embrace, which is why the Russians have their own Euro-Asia Economic Union framework. And in terms of the regional security framework, China, of course, has been dominating the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and its agenda. But in comparison, Russia has this collective security treaty organization, which played the intrinsic role the critical role in the recent turmoil in Kazakhstan, although the Chinese government did offer that well, Shanghai Cooperation Organization could also play a role. Well, guess what? Russia did not let it. So that's a, a, a second example. And the third example is um, Afghanistan. China is a neighboring country of Afghanistan, Russia is not. So in the, the regional structure, the regional mechanism that China designed, which is called the meeting of Afghan's neighbors, Russia was not included in the first meeting. And in comparison, the Russian adopted format is called Moscow format. And it includes not only Afghan's neighbors, but also two of, his, two, two of the countries that are not his neighbors, Russia and India. So I would say that in terms of these uh, regional affairs, there is a competition between China and the Russia in terms of the dominant role, in terms of uh, the dominated me- dominant mechanisms, and basically who takes the lead. So that's another example of uh, the conflict between China and Russia. There are more and we could discuss them in the following questions. And we could
0: probably just have another interview about those conflicts too. Um, Well, thank you for that background, That was really helpful. I wanna turn uh, to more recent events that have happened. It's been all over the news, the meeting between Xi and Putin in Beijing on the eve of the start of the Winter Olympics. You know, at this meeting, a no limits partnership was announced. Um, what is your analysis of this meeting? What does it all mean? Um, and did the Chinese and Russian readouts of the meeting differ, or
1: were they on the same page on this one? Well, I think the symbolic, uh, the significance of the meeting, of course, is uh, is, uh, is is quite high. Um, just judging by the language of their uh, joint statement rarely do we see such enthusiastic embrace of each other in China's foreign policy with any country. Um, And even in terms of China-Russia relations, which we have seen the acceleration of uh, of the bilateral relations in the past decade, in the past eight years, um, this joint statement still stands out in terms of how enthusiastic and how passionate they are and the level of cooperation that they are promising, at least on paper, And also the statement such as there's no ceiling to the China-Russia cooperation. Well, there is no ceiling and and it doesn't mean that that China and Russia are going to cooperate on everything. Um, The lack of a restriction does not not translate into the the transpiration of those uh, cooperation anyway. So I think for the China-Russia joint statement that we have seen this time, the primary message is one that's sent to the West, especially to the United States. We know that the US-China strategic competition is deepening and is uh, the US-China relations has not really recovered as much as Beijing would like to see during the first year of the Biden administration. And when they look at uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy of the Biden administration, they look at the uh, US position on Taiwan, I think the Chinese are feeling that things are only go- going to get worse. Hmm. And for Russia, when Russia mobilizes its strategic resources to prevent the expansion of NATO and to coerce Ukraine, I think the Chinese and the Russians identify a common position or a shared position in terms of pushing back on the United States. I think the joint statement this time is, uh, is a true reflection of that, of that shared desire. Whether this significance is symbolic or is actually material is, uh, is an interesting question because if you read through the joint, uh, joint statement, most of the things that they have said are rhetorical mm. and without a, a qualified measurement of what kind of cooperation, in what field and to what level, in what time frame. So those are the things, the indicators that we look for when we assess China's foreign policy commitment. That whether there is a time frame, whether there is a quantifiable measurement, and the specific area that they will they will cooperate on. Because a simple statement that oh China and Russia are going to cooperate on energy resources that doesn't really say much. Which is why that I feel that for China watchers, when we read this joint statement, a shared feeling or shared observation is that there's a lot of rhetoric. Uh, but the concrete actions and the meaningful, measurable actions are not necessarily in the statement. But it doesn't mean they won't happen. It just means they're not included in the uh, in this statement. Thank you.
0: No, thank you for that. Um, relatedly, just talking about China's foreign policy in general, um, we all know that uh, non-interference in other countries' internal affairs is kind of a tenet of Chinese foreign policy. Um, But I'm just curious, I mean, recent explicit support of Russia in regards to NATO, China saying it's explicitly against NATO expansion, um, this kind of seems to go against the notion of non-interference. And, you know, if Russia were to invade Ukraine, it's definitely breaching another country's sovereignty, which would go against non-interference. And, you know, in 2014, during the annexation of Crimea and you know, Russia's earlier invasion of Georgia, China was not vocal about its views. So what's
1: changed? Why now? Well, the Chinese actually said two things. The first one is well, the interference principle, which is always there. Um, and China also expressed its objection to the expansion of NATO, which is, I think, the, the, the most glaring statement uh, from a point in the joint statement. But at the same time, I think on the most recent, the current Ukraine crisis, the Chinese have also made it clear that, that their position is one country's security cannot be based on another country's insecurity. Mm. And I think the implied message is that if Ukraine wants to achieve its security, uh, to be included to join NATO is not necessarily an option because it will make Russia feel insecure. So I, 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 I agree with you. I think the Chinese are grappling with different and sometimes conflicting positions and conflicting national interests. But at the same time, I think it's also very clear that the Chinese do have a way to justify this, uh, this inconsistency in the sense that, well, yes, to join NATO might be Ukraine's decision, but when this domestic and internal decision does infringe upon Russia's security, well, you need to take that into consideration. This is actually not inconsistent with China's position um, on other issues as well. Like for example, U.S. has been saying that Taiwan Relations Act is a U.S. domestic law. Hmm. Therefore it is the internal affairs of the United States and not for China to interfere with. And the Chinese reaction is that might be true but your domestic affair, your, your domestic legislation also directly infringe upon our national unification. So when, the, when there is a intersection or overlapping of domestic and internal affairs and policies, I think the Chinese interpretation of the non-interference principle is much more flexible and much more nuanced. Thank you. Now that makes
0: sense. And I'm guessing that you know, as China's power grows on the global stage, it has more and more interest around the world, it's probably gonna to have to maintain that flexibility um, in terms of non-interference in foreign policy. Um, Moving on to uh, what's really been kind of also in the news, Um, it seems like a lot of China watchers and other people um, who um, are watching the geopolitical signals, um, reading the tea leaves, they've been drawing parallels between the Russia-China relationship and the China-Taiwan relationship. You know, this analogy has been discussed in various articles, podcasts, we're seeing it all over social media, What's your take on this? Do you think this analogy has a solid foundation?
1: Uh, I think it depends on how you define the analogy. So first off, Ukraine is a sovereign state. It's a member of the United Nations. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine would literally be invading a a, a sovereign nation, Um, but Taiwan does not have that status. So in that sense, this comparison is not necessarily valid because uh, Taiwan, while we, we still know there is a one China policy or one China principle and still, until the Taiwan's legal status changes, I don't think the comparison between Taiwan and Ukraine is going to be a well justified one. But at the same time, there are also comparisons being made about US position on Ukraine crisis and the future US position on, on the Taiwan contingency. And the comparison basically stipulates that if US does not come to Ukraine's rescue, does not intervene on Ukraine's behalf. It also indicates a U.S. lack of willingness to intervene on Taiwan's behalf in a future Taiwan contingency. I think that comparison is uh, probably deserves more deliberation because, after all, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and there is not a domestic legislation in the United States that commits United States to the defense of Ukraine. And U.S. has both. Well, U.S. has such a domestic legislation on Taiwan and U.S. and Taiwan have have had a partnership that goes back decades. So in that sense, I think to compare Ukraine to uh, to Taiwan as U.S. partners is also also lacking its texture and lacking its sophistication. Um, But one thing is for sure, U.S. approach to Ukraine crisis is going to serve as an indicator to China as for how much willingness U.S. will have to intervene and to what extent in in a potential future Taiwan contingency. If U.S. is not um, doing what Ukraine or doing what the world, what a lot of people are expecting U.S. to do, which is to intervene on on Ukraine's behalf, then a signal will be sent to Beijing that maybe U.S. currently is an isolationist power and is not willing to get bogged down in regional crisis that will distract us from is, for example, his domestic development agenda. And I think those indicators or those signals are going to be significant because it is here, I think it is a Chinese perception of the US reluctance to get involved that will drive China's future decision-making because the Chinese will believe, will choose to believe that US will be very likely to repeat what they are doing with Ukraine and not to intervene on Taiwan's behalf and that, inevitably will embolden China's behavior and embolden its calculation. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you. And I, I mean, I'm sure China will be watching, others will be watching. We know that Tsai Ing-wen will also be watching. I, I saw that she formed a task force that will be studying the situation in Ukraine. So definitely there will be consequences reverberating around the world. Um, I know that-
1: Just to add add on that, um, I mean, last uh, last August, when we saw the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, one of the the key messages that the Chinese drew from that is that, look, U.S. is abandoning its partners, and U.S. is abandoning Afghanistan behind after 20 years of of war in in the country. And the message that Beijing tried very hard to send to Taipei is that you will be the next. Mm-hmm. And if there is going to be a war over Taiwan, you think you are not going to be Afghanistan? So of course, I think there is a, a portion of that is a psychological warfare, right? To manipulate the Taiwanese public opinion and how Taiwan perceives the, uh, the US commitment overseas and to, to its partners. But, um, and, and I would say that it's not completely effective, but it will not stop China from playing those messages and to play those, uh, those signals in order to influence, uh, to influence the public opinion in Taiwan.
0: Great, thank you for that. I know China experts like yourself don't necessarily like to speculate about what might happen, but if you'll play along with me, I think our audience uh, members, viewers would enjoy that. Um, how do you think China will react if Russia were to invade Ukraine? How would the Sino-Russian relationship change? And what do you think would be the impact on US-China relations?
1: Well, that's a very interesting uh, very interesting scenario and I think people have been trying to play it out. Um, first, I don't think China will come out to oppose Russia in the event of a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, we've seen this in 2014, the Chinese did not come out to condemn or criticize, criticize Russia for its annexation of Crimea. However, up to this date, China still has not recognized Russia annexation of Crimea just yet just diplomatically channel voice to talk about it. But there's no official recognition either, so I would say that, in the event of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Chinese will most likely would like to remain detached and not to have a position to either support or oppose Russian behavior. And depending on the result of that of that invasion, for example, if Russia does successfully invade Donbass and take over Donbass from, uh, from Ukraine, I, I, I would like to speculate that the Chinese position is going to be very similar to its position on the annexation of, uh, of Crimea. But then down the road, I think the comparison is also interesting that, well, if we think about it, what has Russia ever said or done on Taiwan that's in support of China's position? Well, we know diplomatically there is a statement that while Russia supports there's one China and Taiwan is a part of China. But if you look at concrete actions, has China and Russia ever hosted a joint military exercise in the maritime space uh, close to Taiwan or anything that's targeting Taiwan? I don't think so. Which is why I speculate that the Russian and the Chinese support of each other's position on Ukraine and Taiwan is going to be mostly political and reflected in the lack of opposition to the other side's action. Instead of active policies and postures and military,
0: well,
1: military, diplomatic or political approaches to support the other side in their actions related to Ukraine and Taiwan, respectively. Since
0: we are the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, I want to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, direct implications for this bilateral relationship. It seems like, you know, Russia and China are. Banded together right now in their mutual kind of uh, show of a front against the United States. Um, but I'm curious, what can you know? Even once, if and when the situation in Ukraine dies down, um, what does the United States need to do to respond to this new partnership? Is do Russia and China have the potential to kind of upset, you know, the the world order that the U.S. has been leading since the end of? You know, World War II, the Cold War, been around for a while. I mean, is do they really have the potential to upend that system? And if if so, um, you know, what does the U.S. needs to do to strengthen its position in the world?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think there are different views about whether there is indeed a new U.S.-China-Russia strategic triangle that have emerged among the among the three powers. And very interestingly, I think the Chinese um, government analysts would like to dispute that there's no such a tra- strategic triangle and US, uh, and China and Russia are not going to form an alliance to oppose, uh, to p- oppose US supremacy. I think partially this is uh, understandable because well, during the Cold War, it was a bipolar, it was a polarized world and US and Soviet Union did not really have much of a trade or economic interdependence. But today I would say that China has benefited tremendously from the international system that has been dominated by the United States. And as a beneficiary of that international system, China would like to continue to have close economic relations including trade with, with, with the United States. So in that sense, the international system today is completely different from what it was 40 years ago. Um, so in that sense, I would like to believe that there is not going to be a China Russia alliance that will emerge because that will again divide the world into two and will sever China's ties or will be will be in a direct direction to sever China's ties with uh, with the United States, which China is not willing to do. China still has trade with. Um, China's trade with Russia is, is actually very small, is uh, even smaller than China's trade with uh, with VNM. And I don't think wow. people realize that. Yeah. Um. But China's primary trading partners with Europe, with, uh, with the United States, these are all countries that China cannot afford to lose as trading partners. So just look looking from the perspective of economics, I don't think we're going to see another a new Cold War scenario where uh, China and Russia are on on one side and U.S. and the West is on the other.
0: Great, and you've kind of teed up one of my last questions focusing more on the economic realm of all these relationships. So recently the U.S. government warned China that helping Russia could lead to potential sanctions on Chinese firms in the U.S. Um, How is China likely to react to such actions? You know, do they view that as a serious threat? Is that something that would really change the calculus? And down the line, um, if there were an invasion, what kind of lifeline could China really provide Russia?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, like I just mentioned, trade with Russia is not a significant portion of China's international trade, mm-hmm. but the, uh, the country is not true because China is the largest trading partner of Russia. And from the, um, the total Russian export to China, 70% of, the, of, of that is in, raw commo- is, is in commodities. So energy resources and mineral resources. So China does play a pretty significant role in Russia's external trade. And like I mentioned, back in 2014, China was the one who was able to provide loans and the financing that Russia was in urgent need for, but did not have any options to pursue. Um, and last but not least, I think people don't quite realize this, that most of Russia's semiconductor chips import was, is actually conducted through China. Hmm. So if the United States choose to put China on a more stringent sanction, or let's say secondary sanction for its trade with, uh, with Russia, I think it's going to put China in a very difficult position because uh, the choices are going, to be, are going to be difficult. On one hand, I think the Chinese will think that, well, yeah, more sanctions from the United States was new. But on the other hand, if the Chinese look at the, for example, if the semiconductor um, if semiconductor chips exported to Russia is going to be put under the secondary sanction, is that going to affect or to, Im- uh, to have an impact over what China currently is still able to import from the United States? And I think the Chinese will be very reluctant to jeopardize, uh, to jeopardize that trade. So again, I think the Chinese do prefers a lack um, of a crisis this too prefers a peaceful uh, resolution and diplomatic solution. They have been upholding the Minsk agreement saying that all the parties should just abide by it. So I think the Chinese almost intuitively do not prefer a Ukraine another Ukraine crisis and put China in a, in a jeopardized position. But if the push comes to shove, it will have to be dependent on what kind of sanctions U.S. is trying to put China on and what's the, Basically, the how how broad those sanctions will be covering. Like for example, if Chinese financial institutions and Chinese oil and gas companies, especially CNPC, are put on those sanctions, then I think the, uh, the damage is going to be too significant mm-hmm. for China to carry. Great. Well, you know,
0: we're running out of time, so I leave you know the final thought. Anything
1: you want to leave um, with our viewers today? Um, yeah, I think there's there's this one interesting observation about the China Russia relations that I think in the midst of all the rhetoric, in the midst of all the um, China Russia alignment for the past eight years, that people don't try uh, don't really don't re- really recall, which is that when the Chinese put China Russia relations in a historical perspective and look at the past hundred years or the past two hundred years. I think the Chinese conclusion is that Russia is the one country that has the most damage to China's national interest. Mm-hmm. So we, we all know that in terms of the unequal treaties that Qing dynasty signed, China lost 1.5 million square kilometers of territory to Russia. But what people don't realize is on top of that, the Russian promotion of the Mongolian independence and the Russian through other channels the total territory that the Chinese believe that they have lost Russia historically is as high as 4 million square kil- kilometers. So when we put this bilateral relations in a, in a, in a, in a context, um, I think people will have to understand that nothing is forever. And again, as recent as, uh, for example, 1970s, China and Russia were so confrontational towards each other that China had 6 million troops prepared for potential conflict with, uh, with the Soviet Union. So these type of relationships, they evolve and they fluctuate and sometimes quite rapidly. So since my, my conclusion is that this alignment is primarily driven by external factors by the shared threat perception about the United States basically. So when the external factors starts to change or shift, like for example, if there is an improvement of relations between US and Russia, then the dynamics between China and Russia is also going to shift accordingly. Thank you.
0: Good reminder
1: to all of us that
0: friendships can be fickle. Um, And with that, um, you and I just wanted to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and speaking with us today. Um, We truly appreciate you being so generous with your time and expertise. And we hope those of you who have turned in uh, found the interview to be interesting and informative that you will join us for future National Committee programming on timely issues. Thanks again, take care, and have a nice day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.